Just a little bit of background whilst you're turning it up. Um, since the beginning of Mark 11, we've been in the final section of Mark's Gospel, Mark's story of Jesus' life. We have um, rounded the final bend, to coin a phrase. And Jesus is in Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem with great celebration. But since then, he's done nothing but run up against trouble and opposition. He's cleansed the temple, and that's caused trouble. He's refused to say on what authority he is acting, and that has caused trouble. And then a couple of weeks ago, Josh talked us through the beginning of chapter 12, where Jesus tells this pointed story, which is designed to communicate to the religious and secular leaders of the day, that God is judging them and they are about to be kicked out. So Jesus has not gone out of his way to make himself popular at this stage. One would almost think that wasn't his intention. So we pick up the story at verse 13 of chapter 12. Later, they, that is presumably the chief priests, teachers of the law and elders who have been spoken of a couple of verses earlier, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. <coughs> Jesus replied, Are you not in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Well, once again, Jesus is not going out of his way to make himself popular. What we have recorded here is a string of questions, four discrete question and answer sessions, with different people involved in each one. And um, each is, is fascinating in its own right, and we could talk about each little encounter for a whole evening. We're not going to do that. We're going to tackle all four of them. And the way I want to do that is, first of all, to, to uh, look at each one in some detail, one by one. So the question about tax, the question about the resurrection, the question about the greatest commandment, and then the question about the identity of the Messiah. And then I want to zoom out a bit and say, what's the dynamic behind these question and answer sessions? What's going on here? That'll be round two. And then I want to zoom out again and say, in the big picture of Mark's Gospel, what do these question and answer sessions contribute to our understanding? So we're going through this passage three times. Um, it won't probably take as long as that makes it sound, so don't worry too much. That's where we're going. So... Let's go with round one. So the first question. Some Pharisees and Herodians come to speak to Jesus. And what they want to know is, should we pay Caesar's taxes? Now, as soon as you see the Pharisees and the Herodians arrive together, you should expect funny business. Because... These are the two most disparate, most opposed groups within first century Judaism. The Pharisees on the one hand, strict, zealous for God's law, nationalistic Israelites. The Herodians on the other hand, collaborators, working with the Romans, upholding Herod's puppet regime. What are these guys even doing in the same cab? we should ask ourselves. And yet here they are, coming together to ask Jesus about taxes. 
they start fantastically. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. We're not, but we know that you are a man of integrity. So, without any prejudice, just tell us whether we should pay the tax or not. Now, the presence of Pharisees and Herodians means that they think they've got Jesus caught. If Jesus says, no, you should not pay the tax to Caesar, well, the Herodians run off to their Roman masters, and that's the end of Jesus. If, on the other hand, Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax to Caesar, the Pharisees go off and inform the mob, and that's the end of Jesus' popularity. Jesus is stuck, it seems. And there are big, big things behind this question of taxes. The taxes were hugely unpopular. I guess taxes are pretty much universally unpopular. But these particular taxes were hugely unpopular for a variety of reasons. Firstly, there was the ordinary reason of, I would rather spend my own money than give it to Caesar. That's not unreasonable, and it was heightened in first century Judea by the fact that the Roman taxes were unreasonably high. The country was being bled dry by Rome's tax collectors. But then on top of that, there was this sense that if we pay tax to Rome, to Caesar, then are we not acknowledging his right to rule over us? But we, Israel, are God's people. Only God has the right to rule over us. How can that be right? And then there was a third issue related to the fact that Caesar himself made blasphemous and idolatrous claims from a Jewish perspective. He called himself the son of the divine. The son of God. So there's a lot wrapped up in this question. Should we pay tax to Caesar or not? Jesus' answer is to take the coin, which incidentally they have no trouble finding, so they don't have any issue, it seems, with holding this idolatrous image around their person. He takes the coin and says, whose portrait? Whose inscription? Well, it's, it's Caesar's portrait, Caesar's inscription, Caesar's blasphemous inscription. Well, if that's got Caesar printed all over it, says Jesus, give it back to Caesar and give God the things that are God's. Jesus hasn't exactly answered the question about the tax. But what he has done is set up a whole other question for them to answer. He's saying, where is your heart? Ultimately, the real question is not, should we or should we not pay this tax? The real question is, where does your heart stand with God? What Jesus doesn't do here is set up two spheres, one belonging to Caesar and one belonging to God, and say, in this sphere, just let Caesar have his way, but in this sphere, it's all about God. But what he does do is say, 
If you have given God everything that is God's, then you will be able, guilt-free, to give Caesar whatever Caesar is due. Have a think about it. What belongs to God? Everything. In particular, perhaps, we're meant to think, when Jesus says, whose image is this on the coin? Here is a coin that bears Caesar's image. Give it to Caesar. Here is a human being who bears God's image. Give him life, body, soul and everything to God. And if you do that, what you do with Caesar's image will not any longer be that important. Because you'll be doing it within the context of a life lived for God. So with his semi-non-answer, Jesus is really provoking his questioners to think about where they stand. And we know that they stand in no good place. They've not come here to learn what is right. They've just come here to trap Jesus in his words. We could talk a lot about Caesar. But let's go on to the second one. Some Sadducees turn up. Now the Sadducees we haven't met before in Mark's Gospel, unless I'm grossly mistaken. And that's probably because a lot of Mark happens in Galilee. And the Sadducees were a smallish sect within first century Judaism who were strongest in Jerusalem, and particularly around the temple. They were an aristocratic sect. They were semi-collaborationist, i.e., They cooperated with the Romans, but tried to carve out some space for Jewish culture to be preserved within that that collaboration. But their idea of Jewish culture was quite circumscribed. They didn't believe most of the Old Testament. They just accepted the first five books of Moses. And they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. Now that put them at odds with most of their fellow Jews who did have a a lively expectation of resurrection from the dead. So the Sadducees were an, an oddity in Judaism, but because of their power base in the temple, they were an important oddity. They mattered. They had influence and power. And they come to Jesus with what they no doubt think is an absurd story. And And it is somewhat absurd. In the story, two people get married. But tragically, the husband dies, uh, leaving his widow, and she is childless. Now, the Old Testament law specifies that in that case, the the dead man's brother has a duty to ensure the continuation of his brother's family line. So what he has to do is take his brother's wife as his own wife, And then the first child of the union will get his brother's name, his dead brother's name, so that that line carries on, so that no families die out within Israel. That was the idea. Now, in this story, this um, woman is uh, relatively unlucky, and um, she marries seven times um, and has seven childless marriages. And uh, it says, last of all, the woman died too, which 
may have felt like a relief by that stage. So the question that the Sadducees have is, so this resurrection that you're always going on about, when the resurrection happens, whose wife will she be? Whose wife will she be? Because after all, all seven of them had her as a wife. I imagine that I can uh, see the looks on the Sadducees' faces as they trot this one out. See? Silly, isn't it? If you just thought this resurrection thing through a bit more carefully, you'd realise that it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Whose wife, eh? Whose wife is she going to be, Jesus? Jesus' reply um, is fairly withering. He essentially says... There are just uh, two small problems with your your theology, you Sadducees. Uh, The first problem is that you have absolutely no comprehension of the Scriptures. And the second problem is that you have no grasp whatsoever of God. Other than that, it's great. He puts them in their place. You do not understand the Scriptures. You do not understand the power of God. They're just out and out wrong. Jesus explains a little bit about the post-resurrection state. It's not going to be the same as this. It's not going to be the same. People aren't going to be married in the way that they are in this life. He doesn't go into detail about how that works. But then he, he brings out his biblical proof. And he goes right back into the books of Moses, those books which the Sadducees were actually happy to accept. And he says... Remember that God, in those books, calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, those three people, by the time God uses that name, are dead. Do you really think that God names himself after dead people? No, they're not dead, but living. You are badly mistaken. See, unlike the Pharisees, This is no subtle question designed to trap Jesus. It's just an out-and-out reductio ad absurdum of his position. And Jesus just smacks it down. You are badly mistaken. His answer, really, to the Sadducees is, where's your God? Where is God in your picture of the resurrection? Where's the power of God in all of this? You just don't get it because you haven't understood the scriptures. I'm going to come back to a few things in there later. Better speed up. Third one. Which commandment? There's a chap standing by. He's a a trained scribe. He's been listening in. We don't know whether he came initially to join in with the opposition to Jesus, but he's been impressed with the answers so far. And so he asks one of the standard questions of first century Judaism. Which is the most important commandment? The rabbis of the first century uh, drew out over 600 commandments and um, tried to prioritise them, to say which ones were the greatest and which ones were less important. And the idea of finding the commandment, the top commandment, that was important. If we could get this, it would be the key to keeping the whole of God's law. So he wants to know, Jesus has answered these two questions well, what's his opinion on the greatest commandment question? 
Jesus cheats um, because he brings out two questions, two commandments. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, taken from Deuteronomy 6. A passage absolutely central to Jewish piety. They would have known it by heart. That is what we need to do. Give everything we have to loving God. And then the second, love your neighbour as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. No commandment greater than these, perhaps because, as Jesus says elsewhere, everything else hangs on these. If you love God and love your neighbour, you will keep all of the other commandments. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right. If we love God with everything we have, love our neighbour as ourselves, that's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, more important than all religious observance. Jesus looks at him and says, You're not far from the kingdom of God. Which, just as an aside, let's notice that Jesus is saying, I'm a person who can authoritatively plot where people stand in relation to the kingdom of God. I know who's in. The answer here is pretty straight. Jesus is asked a straight question. He gives a straight answer. Love God and love your neighbour. It's easy in that sense. Easy to work out what you have to do. Difficult to do it. After this, nobody is prepared to ask Jesus any more questions. The Pharisees and the Herodians slunk away. The Sadducees are sitting in the corner looking sheepish. The only guy who's asked a sensible question appears to have come over to Jesus' side. Nobody else dares to ask anything. So Jesus asks a question himself. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I, make your enemy, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? A large crowd listened to him with delight. The Messiah was going to be David's son. All devout Jews knew that. He was going to be of the line of David. He was going to be David's son. It was written in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, how can they say that? How can they say that the Messiah will be David's son? Because after all, David, in Psalm 110, says that the Messiah will be David's Lord. Psalm 110 is fascinating and hugely important for understanding the New Testament and early Christianity in general. But right now, I just want you to think, Psalm 110 is an enthronement psalm. The enthronement of an eternal priest-king really hard to work out how it might have been used in the Old Testament because it just doesn't seem to fit. It bursts through Old Testament categories. 
In the Old Testament, you couldn't be a priest and a king at the same time. But at the beginning of Psalm 110, we have to imagine, as it were, David eavesdropping on a conversation between God and a third person. And in this conversation, Yahweh, God of Israel, says to this third person whom David calls Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, that third person is the Messiah. David foresees the fact that the Lord will set the Messiah on his throne forever. But David calls the Messiah Lord. How can that be if the Messiah is David's son? (coughs) Now, we might think, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's easy to imagine that my son will grow up to be more talented and have more status than me and uh, he could in fact become a peer of the realm and then I would have to call him Lord. I hope he wouldn't enforce it because that would be embarrassing for both of us. (laughs) But it's not too difficult to imagine a scenario like that. But here we're dealing with a culture which sees the ancestor as greater and moreover sees David as the greatest, the great king of Israel. How can David call the Messiah Lord if he is David's son? If he is going to be, by definition, just an aftershadow of David, just an aftercopy of David, how can David in Psalm 110, call him Lord. It's a riddle to which Jesus gives no answer. But if we unpick it a little bit, I think we can see that Jesus is blowing apart their presuppositions about what the Messiah will be. Not just an after David, But we will come back to that in round three. That was round one. Took a long time. Round two will be faster. Okay. What I want to do just briefly is talk through some of what I think the the dynamics behind this passage are because I think it's helpful for us. I think it's helpful because what Jesus is doing here is in facing sort of hostile questioning about who he is and his claims, that is an experience which, will, which is surely not alien to any Christian. To face people who have hostile questions, or sometimes not so hostile questions, about what it is we believe and why. And so I just want to um, look quickly at both the opposition that we see in this chapter and then the, the way that Jesus deals with that opposition. I will be brief because I've been long so far. So, uh, the opposition. Firstly, just notice, the opposition here is unprincipled. We already talked about the unlikely pairing of the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians. These guys did not come to Jesus with an open mind 
looking to find out whether he might be on the level, they came to him to trap him. Now, I am not saying that all opposition that Christians face in the world is unprincipled. Much of it is not. Much of it is very principled. But I do think we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't always assume that things are as they appear. That we don't always assume that because somebody is asking a question, they want to know the answer. Or because somebody appears to object to Christianity on one grounds, that that is actually the real sticking point. It could be something else altogether. It's connected to the second thing, which is that this opposition is personal. It is personal. Of the um, opposition groups, as it were, described in this passage, there's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. The Sadducees, Jesus dismisses because he just doesn't think they understand their Bibles. They're not on the same page as Jesus at all. The page that Jesus is on isn't even in their Bibles. The Herodians he has no time for. They're just contemptible traitors to Israel. The Pharisees actually... The reason I think that the Pharisees get so much airplay in Mark's Gospel and in the Gospels generally is that they are remarkably close to what Jesus is saying. Quite a lot of what Jesus says here would not have been controversial in Pharisaic circles. They would have nodded along to most of it. But they do not like the fact that it is being said by somebody who has just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and cleansed the temple. Because what does that mean? It means that this is not just somebody speaking the age-old wisdom from the scriptures. It is somebody saying, I am the king, and when I say this, you receive it as my royal word. They understand that. And they will not have Jesus. They will not have Jesus. And at the end of the day, I think we come across, certainly I come across, a lot of people who will nod along with a lot of Christian teaching, but will not have this man Jesus to be king over them, to be lord of their lives, to be in control of them. I think that's what happens. And it shouldn't surprise us because it's what Jesus was up against himself. But thirdly, all opposition has potential. I said the, uh, the, uh, the guy who asked the third question, the teacher of the law, we don't know what he was there for, whether he came with the crowd to oppose Jesus and ask tricky questions. But what we do know is that in the process of answering those questions, Jesus won this guy over. Just because somebody starts out on the opposition team doesn't mean they end up there. Many of us could tell stories about how we used to argue with Jesus. I could tell you those stories about myself. And then at some point he wins. 
So that's by way of encouragement, really. If the person, if there is a person who is asking you hard questions about your faith, putting you on the spot, opposed to Jesus, doesn't mean that they're not going to be the person who turns around and says, yeah, he is Lord, he's my Saviour and Lord. Just a couple of things about questions and answers before we get on to what I think is the main point of the passage. Eek. Questions. What Jesus does here, more often than not, in the first two questions at least, is to look for the question or the issue behind the question. He knows that the questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees bring are not their real questions. They are smokescreen. They are an attempt to catch him out. And what Jesus does in his answers is to pierce through that smokescreen and say, what is really going on with you? What is the real question? You came here asking about taxes. Are you giving God everything that he is due? You came here asking about the resurrection and marriage and your silly story. Do you grasp how powerful God is? He goes beyond the question. And in fact, he goes beyond the question, beyond the question, to get to the heart of the people who are talking to him. I um, used to work with students, and um, one of the great joys of that work was uh, fielding questions. Um, My favourite thing to do when I was working with Christian unions was was the gorilla Christian. So, panel of people up the front, students come and chuck questions at you and you try to answer them on the hoof. Um, Loved it. It was great. What became apparent pretty early on was that most of the questions weren't the real questions. And that if you could go and talk to those people after the grilling had finished and the questions had stopped flying around the room, There were sometimes quite deep personal issues that they were willing to open up and share. These objections that they had to Christianity weren't at all the things that were holding them back. It was something else. Something closer to home. But just to qualify, sometimes people just need to have their questions answered. The third chap who has a sensible question gets a sensible answer. Sometimes we've just got to be willing to do that. All right, that was round two really quickly. Here's round three. There's only one point in it. The kingdom of God is bigger and better than you imagined. I think that is the thread running through these four little encounters. Because the questions, the questions are so petty in the first two instances, so mundane. Look at what they're thinking. So, the Pharisees know Jesus has just made a claim to be the Messiah. We've seen that in the last few weeks. Jesus has made a claim to be the King of Israel. And so the Pharisees and Herodians come to him with, all right, if you're the King of Israel, what's your position on tax? 
And Jesus knocks it back at them and says, what's your position on serving God? The next guys come with a tedious philosophical question about the nature of the resurrection. Jesus knocks it back at them and says, it's not going to be the same in the resurrection. You're imagining that life is just going to carry on as usual. It's not going to be the same. Imagine the power of God. Imagine the change that he's going to bring into this creation. I think even in the third story, did you pick up at the end, this scribe, this teacher of the law, says that to love God and to love your neighbour is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Bear in mind they're standing in the temple courts. Burnt offerings and sacrifices all around them. When Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, is it because the guy has grasped something about the transitory nature of burnt offerings and sacrifices? Even if it's not that he's grasped it, I think it's a point that Mark is making. Loving God and loving neighbour will endure when sacrifices are over and done with. You see, the kingdom of God is going to radically change things, radically shake things up. When Jesus the Messiah is king, it is not going to be a case of saying, so what will his foreign policy towards the Romans be like? And it is not going to be a case of saying, so who will his resurrected followers be married to? And it will not be a case of saying, bring in a few heifers, we need to sacrifice some animals. It is going to be bigger and better and newer than that. And the reason it is going to be bigger and better and newer than that is because Jesus himself, the Messiah, is not an after David, not a copy of David, not just a restoration of the great Israelite monarchy, which, let's face it, only lasted for two generations. No, it is going to be better and bigger than that. Why? Because the Messiah is somebody whom even great David calls Lord. And he is somebody whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, will set on the throne of the universe forever. He is a priest king forever. In the order of Melchizedek, read Psalm 110. Jesus bursts through the categories that they have for a Messiah and therefore bursts through their questions and their objections, he is bigger. His kingdom is bigger. And I, I just want to put this in front of you, really. Going into this week, going into this week, how big is Jesus? How great is he in your mind? Whether it's just the fact that the week is a bit hard, or whether it is the fact that people come at you with hard questions about your faith, how highly you esteem the Lord Jesus is what will make a difference as to whether you get through it. Whether you grasp that he is bigger and better than you could imagine. Whether you grasp that all of those complicated questions, he bursts through them with the sheer force of his personality. And if you do grasp that, and when you are talking to people who have difficult questions, or when you just have any opportunity to talk about your faith, let's make it about him, about Jesus. Not about who anybody is going to be married to in the resurrection, although I doubt that comes up very often in your conversations anyway. 
He is where the power is. He is where the kingdom is. He is the Messiah, greater than David, the one God sets on the throne of the universe forever.